0: Welcome to the Nerd Party.
1: Hello, hello. Welcome back to Throwback Paperback. I'm one of your hosts, Charles Sheeland.
0: And I'm the other host, Asia Bonilla. We're back this week, moving right along. We're starting book five of The Secrets of the Immortal, Nicholas Flamel, The Warlock. Today, we're discussing the first half of this book and the many options for whom the warlock could be named after. So today, we're talking about chapters 1 through 28.
1: Yeah, this one is a total doozy because of where we left off at the end of The Necromancer. But before we get into that, let's just review who we are. Just for anyone who's new to our show, we're a podcast with the Nerd Party Network. We're best friends, and we are reading and rereading YA Lit together from our childhood and adolescence, and we're sharing books with each other. So, like Asia said, we're currently reading The Secrets of the Immortal Nicholas Flamel, which I read when I was in middle school.
0: We started the show with the series that I had read before, and Charles read it for the first time, and now I've moved on to the Flamel books, which I'm reading for the first time. And as the newcomer to the series, I get to give a quick plot summary for anyone who needs a refresher of the main plot points of the reading. So, jumping right into it. I honestly don't even know how to start this one, but we meet Dee's masters, Isis and Osiris, and they want Dee killed. Zephaniah releases Mars from the casing so that he can go kill Dee, and the good doctor, Dare, and Josh are on the run from everyone, and they head over to Alcatraz to hook up with Machiavelli and Billy because we don't really get a good reason, but they do. The Fab Five get caught and imprisoned on Donutalis. Meanwhile, Aunt Agnes is revealed to be Sagaglalol. Was that right?
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: Okay. And she's also Abraham, the mage's wife. Sophie is there in disbelief that Josh has left her. Perenelle, Nicholas, Prometheus, and Neaton are also at the house. And Mars is also on his way there, so there's a big reunion coming up, but we don't quite get to it. So we basically have a big crew at Sagoglal's house and a crew on Alcatraz, and then there's also the Fab Five in Donatalis on Donatalis. So for a brief moment we get some convergent plot lines. But I'll just quickly go over my impressions. Honestly, there was there was a lot going on. There was things revealed. We finally find out who these masters are. But for me, the only thing I'm looking forward to. That I want why I wanted to keep reading and continue is I just want to know how Scatty is going to get the Fab Five out of the volcano prison.
1: Yeah, we definitely have to figure that out because she's doubting herself, too. But she's got this. I'm sure of it. And. Ironically, the further we get into the series, the fewer things I remember. And I think that you experienced the same thing with Percy Jackson, where like the first book you remembered really well the second book, maybe more. And then as we went on, like, obviously you knew the frame of what was going to happen. Like, of course, Percy's going to defeat Cronus in the end. But we didn't really know how that was going to work. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's the same thing is happening to me. Like, I knew that Anna Agnes was going to beat at Chicago Law, but I didn't realize there was a reunion coming. I didn't know, like, I didn't remember all the stuff that happens on Donutalus. I really didn't remember, like, I knew Josh was going to turn, but I didn't know what was going to happen once he turned. So while I've got the frame for the second half of the series, I don't really remember, like, the color of the story, actually. Mm-hmm. Which is funny because I actually read those more recently, but I guess they didn't stick in my memory as well. But let's dive in. We meet Isis and Osiris, and they are basically revealed right away to be Dee's masters. How thrilling.
0: And I immediately was like, I was right, as I expected. I've never heard of them before.
1: <laughs> what? You've never heard of Isis and Osiris?
0: We had a whole conversation about this and how I have proved to be true that Egyptian mythology is not common knowledge. We asked several of our family and friends and only two people could name these specific
1: Egyptian gods. Egyptian gods. Yeah. We definitely agreed that like consensus ruling is probably that at least in like American public school education, like Greek gods would probably be the ones that most people have like a passing familiarity with. And that also makes sense. Like we were talking about certain like terms and ideas that we have in, you know, even the English language or the American experience. Yeah, It's
0: shape- it shaped like Western society, Western civilization more is like Greek Roman. So that makes yeah. sense.
1: Yeah. And we like even have like the word aphrodisiac, which is like a love inducing food.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And like, that's literally from Aphrodite. Whereas, you know, Nothing in, like, the English language that relates to the sun is named after, after Ra, the Egyptian sun god. So, turns out Isis and Osiris, also, like, the reason, because I was doing a little bit of research on them, because I always knew the names, but maybe that's because I'm a cat person, and I know a lot of cats who so have named Isis and Osiris, because, again, Egypt. They actually didn't have a lot of, like, god dominions, whereas, like, if you think about Egyptian and Roman gods, they normally, you think about what they were the god of. Like, mm-hmm. you think of Mars, or Ares as the god of war, or Poseidon, or Neptune, Neptune. yeah. As the god of water and the ocean. But Isis and Osiris, while every, like, mythological account considers them, like, big, important gods, they didn't have, like, a dominion like Zeus's god of Olympus. So it, it kind of makes sense that, like, you wouldn't necessarily assign them because they didn't have anything that they belonged to. But either way, turns out, Asia was right. She didn't know Isis and Osiris. I was really ready for this reveal.
0: Anyway, what I was more interested in was why Endor was with them. And in a couple of chapters, though, we do get a big reveal. And Endor explains that because, you know, we know that she can see in the future, she can see all the different strands of time that are like possibilities but she basically put Mars under this spell to keep him safe just in case the specific timeline where D decides to turn on the elders comes comes to fruition, which it does. And so now she's finally released him to specifically go and kill D, which I just thought was crazy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's crazy. And we should definitely talk about it, too. And in that same conversation, we find out that basically Isis and Osiris, they have a plan to make sure that Donutalis doesn't fall, so that humans never really flourish. So we get the vibe, and we've kind of known, like if these masters have to be like top tier elders, they gotta be like first class, like they're, they're like casual with and I actually they're kind of scared of her. So they're like kind of that level. Um, and so it, we basically find out that they have a plan that all of human history, they've been developing a plan to go back in time to prevent Donutalis from falling, To basically wipe out Next generation beyond So that the elders can stay in power on Donutalus And that is why Marathio has assembled the Fab Five And he's brought them back in time To make sure that Donutalus Falls And we find this out By meeting Isis and Osiris finally Which is really really important But we've been talking about Mars And like the morality of his imprisonment Because I think we both agree that like Zephaniah is encasing Mars and his aura is pretty cruel. But Mars, like when we get his chapter in San Francisco, he used to be really over it. He does not care at all. He's like, I'm just ready to kill D," But he doesn't bear any resentment. He talks about Zephaniah. He's not mad at her. How do you feel about that, Asia?
0: I, well, I understand that Mars is honestly probably just happy to be free, not really thinking about, I want revenge or I'm mad at her. I think in that moment, he's just. Happy to be free and also to have been given a specific task. He's bad. Back- yeah, he's
1: like flattered that like, oh, I'm the one who gets to do the killing. Like she thought I was the one who should do exactly. the killing. Look at, lucky me. He's
0: been assigned a new mission. <laughs> so I feel like right now that's his main focus. But I don't I don't think it takes away at all from like how cruel that action was. And it doesn't in any way in my mind justify it. But.
1: I agree. Also like Mars. I think that one of the reasons that Mars, as we've talked about, like the elders, like biologically are less sensitive and less feeling than what we would consider human behavior. And Mars, another thing that like he was in agony for a couple thousand years, but like we know the elders for like multiple thousands of years. So maybe in like the grand scheme of Mars Ultor's life, like the time that Zephaniah put him in that aura casing, he's like, yeah, not that big of a deal. I, I wouldn't feel that way, but, you know, maybe. Let's hop over to Mars's protege and our least favorite antihero, Josh Newman. Do you like the canned lines I write for the script every week? You are welcome, listeners. <laughs> but as we always say, his trust of D makes no sense, considering his complete lack of trust for the Flamels. But whatever. And this reading was actually really fun for me in seeing Josh continuously realize that he's with the wrong people and, like, me not feeling bad for him. Like, when they're fleeing... Enoch Enterprises, and, like, they stun the two police guards, and he's like, we can't just leave them here, they'll get crushed by the building. And Dee and Dara are like, really? Because I was about to. And, like, Josh is like, well, we can't do that. And I was like, Josh, you chose the wrong side. Like, you should have known better. I didn't feel bad for him.
0: Yeah, and... <laughs> no, I did not feel bad for him. And Dee just continues to lie to him, specifically when he tells Josh that the Flamels bewitch Sophie and that only killing the Flamel's will lift the enchantment. Like, I'm glad that he at least thinks that he, you know he wants to save Sophie. But does he really think that murdering the Flamel's is going to fix his problems? Like, I just—I like I said—I don't understand how he could trust somebody who's saying, "Oh, the only way you can save your your sister is by murdering these people."
1: Yeah, Josh is in a mess of his own creation.
0: Yeah, and I oh. One thing that made me super mad, like, infuriated me, is when Josh is talking to Dee and he says, like, maybe you'll meet my dad one day. Like, it's almost like he looks up to Dee so much that he wants, like, Dee's approval. Like, he wants him to meet his father. Like, I don't know. It's just pathetic to me. Like, I just don't understand. Which yeah, and you- Which, thinking about it, I just, I know, I think later on, Sophie talks about how, you know josh really looked up to nicholas because i think it's when they are like looking at his dying body and she's like josh really really looked up to nicholas so maybe he just feels so betrayed by that role model that he's grasping at anybody and unfortunately mm-hmm. now his new role model is d for some reason slash like I, I know he likes machiavelli too he just hasn't had as many he hasn't had as many opportunities to interact with him but he definitely shouldn't be looking
1: up to d he has that josh has daddy issues like clearly like he has clear like father figure role and he has like a good relationship with his dad from all we've gotten so like why is he so quick to grasp onto a new father figure or older brother figure yeah and then like just transfer it immediately It's, it's not it's not an attractive trait in anyone to be perfectly frank but definitely not in our protagonist and like again, we get Josh. He's like Machiavelli wouldn't release the monsters into the ocean, right? Like Josh, we've known for a couple books that that was the plan. Like D and Machiavelli were going to release the monsters. You knew this when you were with Nicholas. You knew this when you were with D. Like, why are you acting surprised? Like, I mean, it's a result of like his selective listening.
0: Hmm. Made me so mad. Well, anyway, speaking of Machiavelli, I literally laughed out loud when Machiavelli struggles to say Quetzalcoatl. I think that's how you say it. That was it. good. That was awesome. I mean,
1: <laughs> if I've been saying it wrong, then we both said it wrong now.
0: He was like, "qu- qu-" And then Billy's like, just call him the other name, which to me is harder to say.
1: Billy's like, just call him Kul cool And I'm like, ooh, that's harder to say. Yeah, we get a lot of really great Billy and Machiavelli in this episode.
0: And... One role model relationship I do like is I like how Billy looks up to Machiavelli and specifically asks, you know, if he'll teach him since his master, Quetzalcoatl, never taught him anything. So I like their relationship because, you know, they're both on the bad side. So like they can have relationships there.
1: And also. It feels like one, it's very clearly like student teacher and also. But like they're just much more honest with each other. Like, neither of them has lied to each other at this point. So, and Machiavelli's like, I'm willing to learn things from you. I think that you actually, like, have a completely different outlook on life that I could, like, benefit from. Mm -hmm. And he's, you know, we all kind of feel bad for Billy because he kind of got dumped into the magical world with absolutely no guidance. And, you know, he kind of makes his own way, which is kind of cool, and it's kind of inspiring to Machiavelli, and I think that their relationship just works really well. And there's a juxtaposition between, like, completely crass American who cannot control his impulses. And he, like, every chance he gets, he insults an elder. And Machiavelli was like, I stayed alive by making everyone think that they am indispensable. Like, their relationship, their dynamic is awesome.
0: Yeah, they're a very comedic duo.
1: Oh, yeah, like, that's the spinoff TV show we need. (laughs)
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) And we get a lot of auras, which, as you know, I'm the world-building tracker, so I've got it. But we... Find out that Dare has a sage green aura, which unsurprisingly smells like sage. And we knew Endor had a brown aura, but we find out it smells like wood smoke, which can make sense. And we get Aunt Agnes slash Tsagagalal. She has a white aura that smells like jasmine. And as we know, white, very rare, very powerful. Other big white aura is Perinelle. So we know, like, I'm sure we'll get more into Sagagalal, but clearly very important just by the fact that she has a pure white aura. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. But anyway, let's head back to D because Virginia says in front of D and Josh, and says D is incapable of telling the truth, and yet Josh doesn't take note of that. There's no thought. Like I was expecting him to be like, "Oh, that's interesting," but he doesn't even note it. He doesn't even note it. Like I don't know.
1: That's what we always say. He's selective about what he cares about, and like. Dee's plan keeps changing. It's like, first, it's like, he's with the Dark Elders. Then it's, I'm going to waken in Coatlicue and have her destroy the Elders. Then it's like, I'm going to go back in time and destroy the Elders myself. Like, if I was Dare or Josh, both of them, I'd be really suspicious because, like, it kind of feels like he has to keep changing his plans because they all keep failing. Yeah. I mean, we know they keep failing because we're watching them each happen. But I'm like, Dare is clearly a survivor. Like, what is she doing still associating with someone who has, like, failed at every turn?
0: Yeah, well, it looks like D has finally realized that, you know, he wants to be his own master. But it seems like his plan is to destroy all the elders on Donutalus by going back in time. So everyone's going back to Donutalus now?
1: I guess. And we've already got the 555 five, five, five there. And because Morethu is trying to stop Isis and Osiris. But we have another plan involving going back to Donutalus. Talis. And that actually puts D, like, in direct conflict with his masters, because they're, like, there to, like, preserve the Elder Race, and he's going back to destroy them. So I hope we get that face off, because that should be fun. And while we're on the subject of Donutalis, we should talk about the change. And this is a bit of world-building, which I really love, and I'm glad that we finally get it. But basically, we find out that near the end of the Age of Donutalis. The elders and great elders started to experience permanent physical changes that Abraham the Mage basically said were manifestations of their inner beings. So specifically, we find out that like Aten starts getting like drawn features, and Anubis starts getting w- paws, I believe, and yeah, and
0: like claws or
1: something. Yeah, and we know that Aten, the Anubis, created the Anpu, which are like jackal, like dog warriors, and we also like can conjecture that there are other ones like Kukulkan has a tail and Bastet whom we know very well at this point she has a
0: <laughs> she has a giant she, she cat
1: has head. a giant cat head <laughs> sorry oh, goodness we're back to Bastet and her cat head oh my goodness um <laughs> yes and like Ariop and Nop is an entire spider like so
0: you think that's why
1: I think so. I don't like know if we'll get a full confirmation. A, like, before yeah. she
0: was a person? Yeah. I would have never... Oh, my God. Imagine that make that that's sense. what you turn into, the worst thing in the
1: world. <laughs> also, but, like, you know, like, Abraham, he gets to just become a solid gold statue. Like, like Abraham, it's it's easy for Abraham to be like, it's an inner manifestation of our purest selves. He's like, I'm pure gold, and you guys are becoming monsters.
0: But then he can't move. So, like, that's No, sad. his life is like
1: terrible because, like...
0: He's like what Mars was, like locked in. And kind of like D's
1: punishment, like brilliant brain, but like unable to act on it. Like it sounds like an awful thing to happen to him, but also like it's kind of funny because all the elders are like, oh, my God, that's so rude of you. And he's like, I'm just pure gold, quite literally. And but we do kind of get the fact that like or something that we should keep an eye on is that some of the elders that hasn't happened to Obviously, Isis and Osiris, we just met them, and everyone describes them as, like, beautiful, tan, well put together. So, like, they've been able to avoid the change. That's important. And something that I noticed this time that I never read, that I never noticed the first time I read it, was that none of the good guys, none of the good elders got the change. So Mars and Prometheus and Endor kept their appearance. And I think, Michael Scott, please tweet at us and confirm, But I wonder, and I want to know what you think, Asia, but I think that it might be because they were the allies of the humans, that they got to, that their inner manifestation ended up being like, looking like humans so that they could stay in the human world as human teachers.
0: Mm -hmm. That would make sense. Like
1: they, because they went to join the humans, but not as like gods, not as people to be worshipped. That's why they got to end up looking a little more like humans.
0: Yeah. And the same thing. And I just wonder with Isis and Osiris, like, how did they avoid it?
1: That one, I do know the answer to, but I am not going to tell you.
0: So some kind of dark magic or something. Okay. Well, (laughs) we says, get to find out.
1: But, uh, well, like, and even, like, the next generation, I mean, we know the next generation, they all got morphed because the theory is that because they were born after the fall of Donatolis, like, their genetic pool wasn't as, like, pure as it should have been or something like that. It wasn't really described Mm -hmm. that well, but... We kind of got that in, like, the Sorceress, where it was, like, why the next generation all wonky? But, like, because the Sphinx is technically a next generation, and the Crow Goddess is a next generation. But, again, they look so real it's really gross. Hard to
0: keep track of. But
1: Skadi and Aoife, original allies of the humans, look a lot more human passing. So I just wonder if maybe, like, being a good elder next generation meant that you didn't have to look crazy.
0: Like, the outside matches the inside.
1: Yeah, and we have someone else that we should talk about, Segaglal.
0: Yes, we aren't sure what Segaglal. Sagla- <laughs> <Sagaglilol. laughs> <laughs> this name, we aren't sure what Sagaglilol is, but she clearly avoided the change. Whatever she is, so maybe she just is an elder. But we do know that she's Aunt Agnes, so the aunt that Sophie and Josh have like grown up with and stayed with when their parents are away. And it also turns out that Aunt Agnes gave the Codex to Marithew, and he gave it to Nicholas. So when we discover this fact, we also find out that something interesting about the twins' bedrooms, which I noted.
1: Yeah, I think this is our weekly thing where there's one thing that we both write down, and I had a feeling it was going to be this. But Sophie has a moon painted on her ceiling.
0: And Josh has a sun, which it's almost as if... Aunt Agnes, Sagagalal, knew that they were the Sun and Moon twins, like, the entire time, which, I mean, I would assume she did since, what do they call her? The the one who The
1: one who watches.
0: The one who watches. So I would assume that she always knew, and I guess that's why she s- sought them out.
1: Yeah, which has really big implications if you think about it. Like, Sophie hasn't quite gotten there yet, but I do think I remember that Sophie's about to have, like, a little bit of an identity crisis about it, because, like, if you think about it, They specifically say that Agnes is not related to them, but she's been a family friend forever. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Which, like, if you think about the fact that she knew that they were going to be the twins before they were born, like, it actually is a really big deal. And, like, cute detail about the one who watches. If you remember in The Necromancer, every time Agnes is described—actually, before this book, even, every time Agnes is described, she's described as being, like, a major busybody who's—all she does is, like, check in on the twins— and like, the one who watches, like, it was her job to check in on the twins. Boom Yeah, crazy.
0: I just have to say, I think, I think in the last, I think in the last book, when they return home for a second and then immediately leave, there's one chapter with Aunt, from Aunt Agnes's point of view, and that's when I knew I was like, she has to be involved in the story, because he wouldn't have included her perspective without her, like, having something to do with the world. I had, like, predicted that, and I obviously didn't know who she was going to be, but I was like, that was weird. I don't know why we got her perspective for, like, one chapter.
1: Yeah. It's, we're really getting the vibe, and I know this is going to happen in the next reading as well. It's going to happen to the end of the series, that there was an inevitability to all of this. Like, we, like, Marethew and the hook-handed man, like, he's basically been involved with all of our characters earlier on. And Agnes has been watching the twins forever. And Nicholas is like, you guys like biologically had to be the twins of legend. Like there was an inevitability to all of this that is re- like, we're getting that layered on, which I think is a real testament to Scott's writing that like, yeah. it starts as so like accidental, almost, almost, but each like chapter we're finding out that like, was this always going to happen or at what time frame? And it keeps going. Like we're about to get, into, like, let's talk more about that.
0: Yeah. And since we're talking about the subject, we also have a pretty important revelation from Perenelle who we find out that Marithew basically told her all of this would happen before she even met Nicholas. Like when she was a child, she, he told her about this man she was going to marry. And we know that Nicholas isn't even her first husband. She was a widow before. And we also forgot to mention last week that Marithew had told a young D that his fate was linked to the sword, the the elemental swords. So it just seems like a lot of this was all planned and foreseen. And every reading, it seems like we find more and more about that inevitability. And it just seems like it kind of all was foretold.
1: No spoilers, but oh my God, it's just gonna get worse. Like there's gonna be... Your mind is going to be blown. Your mind is going to be blown. It's, it's... Oh, God.
0: I just want to know who Matthew is, because he seems to be pulling all the strings.
1: Yeah. The ending of the series, like, I remember it frustrating me because of some of those inevitability things, where I was like, this, like, I didn't like it. It felt almost like, maybe we'll get into, like, a very literary theme of, like, fate versus free will when we get there. Mm-hmm. Because Sophie's like, Sophie's, like, do I not have, like, free will? Like it's is always going to happen, but like, but but in Paranels, like you do because you literally chose not to leave with D.
0: Yeah. Also, I because that's why I'm saying like it's not the idea of their fate is that you know they were these destined to be these powerful twins, but their free will is how they even talk about one to destroy, one to save, mm-hmm. and it's that's your free will. Your free will is either of those decisions. So I mean. Your free will isn't just anything, but you were destined to have these powers and be put in this position, but your free will is what decision you make based off of those circumstances.
1: Definitely. And we'll talk more about that when we get to the end of The Enchantress, because it's, like I said, there's just going to be a lot more on the inevitability thing and the foretold and foreplanned thing. So just prepare to be mind blown, if I remember correctly. (laughs) Okay. And coming up in the next reading, we'll also get, because basically Perenelle has decided now that she is going to give Nicholas one of her days. She has two days left. Nicholas is about to die. We haven't gotten to, like, that process, but she's like, I need to, like, keep Nicholas alive and Sophie and Sagagalal, you have to help me do that. Which is kind of cool. It's scary, but it's cool.
0: Yeah, I'm definitely interested to see how that process is going to be because she's like, Sophie, like, I need your aura. And Sophie, like, her instincts were saying, like, like basically screaming at her, don't do it, don't touch her, like, don't participate, this is wrong. Mm Mm-hmm. But obviously she also wants to help give Nicholas an extra day and help Paranel. But I just thought that was interesting because she was, like, her instincts were, like, no, no, no. But she still, like, gives her her hand or something.
1: I mean, it's just because Sophie is so selfless. Sophie is, like, willing to do whatever it takes to, like, help others. And, like, she's right in fearing it because we know that, like, your aura, if it's overburned, like, if you use too much of it, you'll, like, burst into flames. But, like, it's not like Paranel could have asked josh to do that like he would have said no and he probably would have like killed her whereas like (laughs) sophie's like i mean yes take my hand together we will celebrate i'm sorry i'm now i'm just quoting high school musical let's move on
0: okay (laughs) anyway Speaking of strong women like Paranel and Sophie, (laughs) let's talk about another strong woman, Virginia Dare, who I am really growing to like. This is another strong female character, even though she's, like, on the bad side. I do like her. Oh, yeah. And I personally really just like her sassy and sarcastic comments, like when her, Dee, and Josh are in the car and they're being chased by cyclists and – D makes a comment about, he's like, I don't think bikes are allowed on the bridge. And she's like, well, why don't you get out and tell them? Yeah. <laughs> I just thought it was so funny.
1: Their flirtationship is, like, awesome.
0: Like, she just has so many, like, nice one-liners. Mm. And then once they get in the boat and they're trying to get to Alcatraz and the NERADs are, like, about to attack them, one of them jumps up and grabs her flute. And no hesitation, she just leaps in after this dangerous mermaid thing. And, like, she's like, I'm going to get my flute back. And she gets it back, and she ends up, like, on the shore, like, after D and Josh have to, like, fight them off. Mm-hmm. And I just, I guess that's why her last name is Dare. Like, I don't know. She's just very, see what I did there?
1: <laughs> she's very daring, yes. I mean, what really annoyed me, though, again, just about Josh, like, they're in the boat, or they get off the boat, and... The, and oh yeah, they realize that Dare has like defeated the Neriad, and Josh is like, I can't believe that Dare would be a killer. And I'm like, Josh, what on earth? Like, she's literally said she was going to leave the police officers. She's clearly incredibly lethal, like, and capable. Like, what, what, what is he? What is he thinking? Uh,
0: because I already, I'm, I'm worried that he is falling in love with her, which I would assume that's what's blinding him. Which. He is not worthy of her. Josh deserves no one. Ira said, he's the person I would kill. So, absolutely <laughs> not.
1: Yeah, we get some, like, insinuations that, like, yeah like, might be, like, attracted to her. And also we get, like, insinuations about her and Billy.
0: Which I would be for.
1: Which I'd be for because I like them both, but also, like, kind of gross.
0: Yeah, also, like, she's just a strong, independent woman. She doesn't need any she man. She doesn't need no man. Yeah. <laughs> And also just when you think about the age gaps between all these characters, like Billy's it would be like crazy. what,
1: 150 and she's like four hundred-ish, I could be completely wrong.
0: Well she don't at me. Yeah. Wait, I don't even know.
1: Cause she's born first child in first British child in the Americas.
0: So wouldn't that be in like the seventeen hundreds?
1: Okay, so then maybe she's more like four hundred.
0: So something like but still, and then obviously Josh is fifteen. <laughs>
1: Yeah, just because she looks pretty does not mean she's, like, in your category, Joshua.
0: Yeah, but anyway, that basically wraps up our bad guys. And we they do get, like, a nice island reunion of all the antagonists, including a really thoughtful Machiavelli line, which I wrote down. And basically, Machiavelli says that the price of his mort- immortality was his service to the Dark Elders, but not his soul. And that's why he'll always be human at heart. And I think this is a huge difference between him and D, because as we've seen, D kind of has sold his soul to the elders. And he's only now finally thinking about those consequences and how the elders obviously don't have his best interest at heart and they don't actually care about him. And he's just done some really terrible things. So when yet another time that Machiavelli, of course, is above D.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: But let's go ahead and quickly wrap up the Tallis plot because, you know, Scatty is still my favorite, even though we really don't get a lot of her. But I like that on their way to Donutalus or not on their way, I think while they're standing, when they first get there, the first thing she's thinking about is how she would love to see her parents and her brother, which... Again, I I feel like I just wasn't really paying attention at the beginning of the series because I'm kind of more understanding what it means to be next generation versus elder. And so like her parents and brother, older brother, they were there before the fall of Donutalus. So they're elders. And I guess she explains how once her and Aoife were born, they kind of hated them because they didn't know about the existence of Donutalus. So they weren't coming from like this feeling of disappointment of losing power. They were, you know, just having a fresh Mm -hmm. start. And so she says that her parents and brother like just were always bitter and like mad all the time, and so she was just like she was looking forward to maybe getting to see them and during a happier time, which I just thought was interesting. Yeah, it's sweet. But then I also, but then I also just thought it was very funny how when they get put in the volcano prison. That She says how, like, she sees how everyone is looking at her because she, like, says how she saved everybody out of super dangerous, super difficult places and prisons. And they're just waiting for her to figure out what to do. And she's like, I have no idea. So that is literally all I'm looking forward to for finishing the book. Like, I want to know how they're going to get out because it does seem, like, really impossible in this moment.
1: Yeah. We will have to see what happens to them. I have no remem—I have no memory of how they escape. And yeah, the generation thing is a little confusing, especially because in the first two books, it kind of sounds like like you basically had the elders, and then their children were all the next generation. But it actually, as we find out, it's if you were born on Talis, you were an elder, regardless of like what year you were.
0: Yeah, that's also where I was confused because I was like, well, how could her brother be from a different generation as her? But it all has to do with Donutalis. Like, that's all that matters.
1: Yeah, it's relative to the fall. And that's confusing because it, like, that's not how generations work. Generations are, that's not how they work. But basically the new species, the next generation, they start post-Donutalis. Mm-hmm. And let's wrap up Aunt Agnes' house because we have a bunch of characters there. We have the Flamels, currently in Resurrecting Nicholas situation. We have Prometheus, we have Niten, we have Sophie, we have Agnes. It's And we have Sophie basically deciding that she's going to try to save Josh. But first, she'll try to save the world because she's a good person. Thank you, Sophie.
0: Which yeah, I remember when Paranel and agnes so goggle off. when they talk to her they're like what are you going to or they're like they basically like rope her into the conversation where it's like clearly this is the right choice and the other option is the wrong choice Mm -hmm. and they're like and i they're right the fact is it's not that you can't save your brother but like how are you gonna there's you're not gonna have a brother to save if the world ends so you know you need to focus on saving the world first then you can think about saving your brother Definitely. But let's actually jump over to the final conversation. This is the last thing we get in the last chapter that we read between Machiavelli and Billy. And they discuss being a warlock slash oathbreaker or wereloga.
1: Wereloga, yeah.
0: Okay, is that how you say it? But Endor also calls Mars a warlock. So we have a lot of options basically as to whom the book is named after. And like, I think, didn't you say that this is supposed to be Josh's book? I mean, we haven't really gotten any mention of Josh being warlock, but this is only the first half of the book. So I would assume it would come later.
1: Yeah. Again, we're like sort of unclear because if we go off of Nicholas, Nicholas, Michael Scott's tweets at us that the color of the frame of the book indicates like this has a, the warlock is gold. And that's Josh's aura. But we described how, like, last book, it really, the Necromancer definitely applied more to Josh. And it was a gray, dark gray, black smoke. And we know that Machiavelli has a gray aura. And we're, we obviously, Machiavelli has not broken his oath yet. But we definitely get a lot of characters and candidates that could be candidates for this title of wereloga or oathbreaker or warlock and that's one of the things i do remember they're going to be more in the next reading so
0: a warlock is somebody who breaks an oath correct okay i i didn't understand that
1: and wereloga i believe is the Donutalis word for that
0: so why is it called a warlock i don't know because to me that just sounds like a warrior or a f-
1: no warlock is a type of magician
0: Okay, but like it like, has the word where, "lock" in it. When you saw it.
1: Santa Claus is coming to town, like the Winter Warlock.
0: Santa Claus is, is like coming a, to town. What?
1: The movie, the old movie. Yeah, from yeah the, the 70s? with the
0: like clay. What are you, what are you talking it's about? It's
1: not clay, but yes. Um, you know what
0: I mean. Stop motion, whatever. Yes, There's,
1: the the Winter Warlock is the magician, the snow monster who like who like has spells on the hill. I
0: couldn't tell you. It's been too long.
1: I watch that movie every year. But
0: anyway, I, I just sense. I didn't understand. Like the, I would have never guessed that that meant a warlock is like a
1: fantasy term. Okay. Yeah this this interpretation of it I never read until I read this series.
0: Well, that's why I'm saying I, like the idea that that's okay because then if that is what a warlock is, then Josh is the biggest of them all. This is true. So that makes more sense. Okay, because I was like I thought warlock just meant. A warrior, or if you're saying like a wizard, like I, I a thought, a war it,
1: wizard or something. It was that. something like
0: that, as opposed to like it meant this specific kind of person. So, okay, with that theory, I mean we haven't gotten it proven yet necessarily, specifically in the book, but like that's Josh. He's an oathbreaker. He literally, he literally left Sophie behind.
1: I guess, yeah. I mean there are a lot of oaths being broken. I I don't and know. And that's that's where we left off. I mean it's more that like if we have to assume that each book is named after a different character. You actually like you have to assign one to each one.
0: Well, yeah, because we said that if Josh was the last book, I don't know.
1: It's also like because again, the biggest necromancy we get in the series is D, but D is also the magician.
0: Does Machiavelli do necromancy? Like, have no, we? No, he doesn't
1: seen? do any necromancy.
0: So I'm saying I don't think we. So like, he can't be the necromancer. Which,
1: but like, D is the magician. But D actually isn't that heavy in that in book two. Like, it's there's not a lot of D to begin with. I mean, he gets there by the end, but like. Like, if we're assuming that all these books have to be after one character, and we know, like, we know that one is Nicholas, we know that two is D, we know that three is Paranal, and I can confirm that book six is going to be Sophie, like, we know Josh has to have one.
0: So he's the warlock. The necromancer is the one that doesn't make any sense.
1: Michael Scott, can you send us a definitive list?
0: Or are we saying maybe that Josh is the necromancer,
1: and then Machiavelli should be the warlock? That's what I'm personally choosing to believe right now, because which
0: they are the ones who are talking about this oath breaking because he's planning on breaking his oath. We're not planning. We don't. We right don't know. now, There's, Machiavelli's
1: like, "I'm not breaking my oath yet." I'm like, "Yeah, you're going to."
0: It's it's suggested that it's it's likely he is going to end up breaking his oath with the elders because he is going to see that this is not he doesn't align with those beliefs. Yeah. And he is to seem to, like he. we said, he's more of the human one. And so if he doesn't agree with it, he's not going to go through with it.
1: And, like, speaking of this, D goes to the island where Nereus is. D Nereus is an elder. Oh, Nereus. He becomes, like, a weird sea monster. That's the change for him. But, yeah. like, D and Nereus, they should be, like, sworn enemies. So the fact that D is on the island, I'm like, I mean, maybe we do get a fight in the next chapter. Or, like, whenever, like, they meet. But isn't Dereus about to release the Lotan and, like d is on the wrong side like there should like they are enemies because d is now an oh, outlaw yeah. like i don't I mean, know they
0: are <laughs> right <laughs>
1: I well because Deer- nereus but is an did- elder nereus
0: didn't see d did he not yet
1: no we haven't gotten there yet but it doesn't so make maybe sense he'll d freak is
0: out when he sees him. right
1: okay glad i'm not doing i mean one.
0: the neread still attacked exactly so maybe, like so maybe he just like hasn't Said anything yet? Because we just didn't get him. I mean,
1: they they literally haven't been like together yet. Like we haven't seen Nereus with D, but I'm like D being there doesn't make a lot of sense because Nereus is an elder and D is now sworn against the elders.
0: Okay, that makes sense.
1: Basically, that's where we leave off. All the bad guys: on Nereus, uh, Alcatraz, big party at Aunt Agnes's, and lots of drama waiting ahead on Donutalis. So we have to keep reading.
0: How do you call it? A big party at Aunt Agnes's. It's like a a Resurrection going
1: on. Yeah, it's Joker. kind of like depressing. Also, like ten and Prometheus are like broing out. Like, I'm like, are they like off having a beer? Oh my like, god. Like, where did they go? <laughs> and like, we know Mars is on his way. He's like, he like beats up the little thugs and he's like, where is the And I'm like, they have no idea. Like, he's on his way there. So there's just a lot. Like, it's gonna be a party. Like, I'm looking for red solo cups.
0: Hello, okay. But anyway, one question I noticed. In this reading, and I think the last reading, Uh I had noticed, because in this one, they say that Paranel has white tears, which before, I noticed that they said Prometheus had red tears, which at first I was like, do the... And Scatty, I think during this, Scatty has red tears. Uh And so I was like, at first I was like, do the elders like cry blood? Because I was like, that sounds terrifying. (laughs) Here we are, back to the horror (laughs) movie. (laughs) But anyway. (laughs) But in this reading it's noted that Paranel has white tears. So does that mean the Immortals' tears match the color of their aura? And remember, I don't remember everyone's aura, so that could have not made any sense.
1: You know what? But it does make sense, except Scatty having red tears because Scatty's aura is gray.
0: I thought her aura was red.
1: Prometheus' <laughs> is red. She she, has she could red- have
0: red tears because she's a vampire. <laughs>
1: Oh, okay. Right? Yeah, pro- I mean, probably.
0: I know she doesn't drink blood, but, their, but hers could be explained away like that.
1: Yeah. But, like, Sophie, I feel like, even also has had, like, some silver, silver tears. Silver like, tears. It definitely makes sense that your aura reflects, like, your tears reflect the color of your aura. I just wanted but to Scatty, put that
0: note in, because I know you've been doing the world building with the auras, but, like, I forget. I only remember, like, the main ones.
1: I'll keep a track of it if there are any. If we have more tears to come, I'll track it, but scatty being having red tears is the only one that doesn't make sense because everyone else the tears have a line with their aura color
0: well we'll make sure to keep track of more tears i'm sure there'll be plenty of crying going on
1: i'm crying right now (laughs) mostly just because i was yawning
0: (laughs) and we're going to be finishing the warlock for next week so read to the end of the book if you're reading along with us
1: Yep. If you have predictions, theories, questions, anything else, as always, you can stay with in touch with us on the Nerd Party website. You just head over to nerdparty.com contact. You select Throwback Paperback. That's how you can send us an email. You can also get in touch with the general network on Twitter at Join Nerd Party or on Instagram at The Nerd Party or on Facebook at facebook.com The Nerd Party. I'm on both Twitter and Instagram at C.E. Sheeland.
0: And I'm at Asia Bonia on Twitter and at asia.bonia on Instagram. If you enjoyed this, make sure that you rate and review the podcast and share it with your friends. And of course, check out the other podcasts on the Nerd Party Network. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss us
1: next week. Yep. Hit that subscribe. You have a good one. And we'll see you next week.